0: Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, a Dropbox bugs that might be holding onto your deleted files, a new ATM attack that's after your wallet, some top Twitter tips to keep your secret identity secret, plus your feedback, a huge roundup, and so much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This episode was live streamed on January 31st, 2017, and is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. My name is Wes, and with me this week, as always, is Dan, the admin, the organizer, and the explainer. Welcome to the show,
1: Dan. Hello, Wes. Hello, ChatRub.
0: Ah, it's good to be with you again. How have you been?
1: Uh, I've been good. Uh, we we went uh, into central PA for the weekend. Went to an old logging area. Oh, uh, that sounds beautiful. Up north of uh, Williamsport, it was really nice. Very beautiful.
0: And so now you're here, ready uh, to talk about the latest security news. I am. I am. All right, let's get rolling. What have we got first?
1: Well. The first thing we have is uh, when you delete something, you think it's gone, but sometimes it's not gone, and sometimes it's really not gone, and sometimes it comes back. So, Dropbox has fixed a bug that caused old deleted data to reappear on the site. The bug was reported by multiple support threads in the past three weeks and merged into one issue here. An anonymous slash dot re- reader writes, in some of the complaints users reported seeing folders they deleted in 2009 reappear on their devices overnight. After seeing mysterious folders appear in their folders, some users thought they were hacked. Last week, a Dropbox employee provided an explanation as to what happened, blaming the issue on an old bug that affected the metadata of soon to be deleted folders. Instead of deleting the folders as users wanted, and regardless of metadata issues, Dropbox chose to keep those files around for years and eventually restored them due to a blunder. In its file retention policy, Dropbox says it will keep files around a maximum of 60 days after users deleted them. So, you got stuff you deleted from 2009 you want back? Keep it on Dropbox.
0: Wow, that's, uh, that's. No, I mean, I can see how something like that could sneak into it. You know, uh, you just miss this bug. But with so many people that using Dropbox as kind of the home away from home, you know, it's the thing that you have that runs on every computer that you have. It runs on some of your, you know, the servers or backup systems that you have. You trust it. You pay for it. Yikes. That is crazy. What, what, what struck you about this story?
1: Um, well, if you have sensitive data do not rely on delete. Rely on encryption instead. If you have sensitive data, you shouldn't have it on third-party systems without encryption. Uh, you should do the encryption and decryption on your system, not theirs. Right, so that they don't uh, have the key or need to have the key. They never have a copy of the unencrypted data. They never have a copy of the key. They they can have a copy of the encryption key, the public key, but not a copy of the, of the private key. So I thought of a scenario just imagine you're returning from an overseas trip okay. and you've deleted these sensitive files before you went overseas. Right, you don't want but any trouble with the borders. La- you don't want to. Right, uh, yeah. right, exactly. Or maybe it's confidential
0: so, and you don't want you know corporate espionage or whatever else.
1: Or whatever else you might have been looking at. So you get to the border, they ask you to open your laptop. Bang, all these files you thought were deleted are suddenly back in your laptop. That might be embarrassing.
0: Oh, that could be very embarrassing
1: so uh i think about the best way for this is if you need to delete something and be sure it's gone have it on an encrypted file system and then when you delete that file system it's gone when you delete the key it's gone you can't you can't get that data back sort of reminds me of tar snap
0: yeah you know that uh, that reminds me of tar as well it's something something where if you can be sure either in the design of the system that it's secure or a system that exposes enough control that you know how it works. So if you can have your own servers, but if you are forced to use a third-party service, some services place more effort and more importance on convenience rather than your security. And maybe that's fine for, you know, pictures from a casual event or or whatever, but you need to be aware and don't just take shortcuts, or at least be aware of the security limitations and policies and past problems of any service that you might use.
1: Yeah, well... Most GUIs ha- have a trash bin where you can recover the file, but third-party providers, you never really know if they've deleted your data. Um, Facebook was famous for for not really deleting stuff when you deleted it. If you had the link to the to the uh, photograph, you could still get to it. Um, oh right, yeah, I remember that. You deleted the photo, but is it really gone, or is it just the pointer from the URL to the data file merely removed, and the file still exists on disk?
0: And are they doing anything to do it, you know, anything about that? Or are they just going to yeah. leave it and assume that's good enough?
1: Yeah. But go a bit further. Um, consider you sent an email with photos and you download the photos to your laptop just because, you know, you've sent it, somebody's replied, you download it to your laptop, and then you delete the photos. Are they gone? Well, no, they're still in the email. And depending on your mail system, it could be both on your laptop on a, and on the mail server. So you start to get paranoid and so you delete the email. So is is the photos gone now? Uh, No, because your email app may have a a trash bin. So you got to delete it from there as well. So, but then you got to delete it from the uh, uh, rubbish bin on your laptop because you had it on your desktop and you deleted it from there. Um, But okay, now you delete it from all those places, but is it in a backup somewhere? Is it, is it somewhere else that you don't have control of? Um, this is really why you shouldn't do anything personal on work computers. That sort of stuff That's a great
0: point, yeah. You don't know yeah. how many places that's synced or what kind of trail that's leaving. And even if it's innocuous, if something yep. bad happens later, you could be on the hook for that.
1: Um, it may be something trivial. You're just talking to your partner about something very... of no interest to anybody else. Yes, but right. your business. When you read a written conversation in isolation, it can be interpreted many different ways. And you don't want those private conversations being subpoenaed should something happen at work and they mm-hmm. decide, oh, we've got to have all this data. You have no right over that data. You, you it use disappears. their, yes,
0: right. And it's all those agreements, the network agreements, the right to yep. use, that kind of stuff that you, you've you already signed those rights away. You've already made these agreements. Yep. yep. You should be realize it, that you're bound by them.
1: It's not yours. Ne- never do personal email on work computers. Never.
0: It's a hard, it's like a, it's It's easy to say, it can be hard to do, but I feel like if you can, if you can set it up, especially now where, you know, most people have a cell phone or other device that they can use for personal stuff when they need to, it can make it a little bit easier.
1: Yep. Yep.
0: Okay. Well, with that, I think it brings us to our first sponsor, which is DigitalOcean. Uh, DigitalOcean. They're the simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easiest way to spin up a cloud server. So maybe you've been put in this position, right? You're worried about your data, and you know that the cloud, Dropbox, other things, these are other people's computers. With DigitalOcean, it's a computer that you control. So go check them out. Use our promo code SNAPOcean. You get a $10 credit. With that, you know, they have droplets starting at $5 a month. So with that $10 credit, that's two months. Or, you know, splurge a little. Get the ten dollar month droplet. Yeah. Okay. Sure. You only get the one free month, but with that ten dollar droplet, you can you can do anything. You can set up your own own cloud server, next cloud server. Just maybe you just want an FTP server, or uh, you know a little you, you want an SSH host you can get to from anywhere as a bastion to get to your home network. Maybe you're setting up something like Plex or MB in the cloud. With DigitalOcean, they make it easy. They've got data centers in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Toronto, Frankfurt. The list just keeps growing. They have a simple, intuitive control panel. Once you've tried their control panel, you're just gonna be like, why isn't everything this easy? Why can't I order food this easy? It doesn't, my, my, I, don't, I, I get takeout. It doesn't come in 55 seconds, that's for sure. With DigitalOcean, you have a brand new VPS right that fast. Plus, they've got the simple control panel, they've got the simple API. Now they're working on even more features. If you look here, you can, you can see point seconds, they've got SSDs everywhere, simple API. They have block storage. We've talked a lot about that. Great network, 40 gigabit, right to the hypervisor. Plus, they're rolling out things like load balancing. Now, you don't have to go to some giant enterprise scale cloud provider. You can use DigitalOcean, the company you trust. They make it easy and they have monitoring. So, they've got these in beta. Go sign up, go check them out. Check out their blog. They talk about these things. You can get it there. Use our promo code, get started, SnapOcean. Thank you, DigitalOcean, for hosting the TechSnap program. All right, with that, we've got our next story. What do you have for us, Dan?
1: Well, following on from this privacy stuff, I've got an idea um, from this Twitter activist security guidelines. It was great. Um, you, You may not be aware of how important it is to sometimes be very private and very secure in the stuff that you're doing. Um, especially when it comes to being an activist. Sure. So oh, if you have opinions an,
0: that may be unpopular, uh, are strong, yep. or, you know, yep. are speaking for the rights of others.
1: Correct. Now, people may not, you know, people who are not involved in this area may not think it's very important to, to have privacy if you're doing this, but it, it is. L- let me start off by um, reading what the, this chap has said. Um but 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 first, we've covered privacy in the internet before. We stated very clearly that using privacy tools such as Tor is not illegal, nor is it suspicious. It's no more suspicious than someone paying cash at the grocery store. It's perfectly fine to be using it. And for any agency to think that anyone using Tor is, is suspicious or deserves greater attention, no. No, they're wrong. I think that's a great so, point.
0: And then the cash analogy it really speaks mm-hmm. to it right like you mm-hmm. you don't yes it's less trackable yes there's you know there are implications for law enforcement or other things but that doesn't mean that in a free society these are things that we should reasonably consider as suspicious
1: yep tor is just another tool to get on the internet don't <laughs> yeah, yeah it? exactly know, it may be hiding some activity but you can't ban everyone because of that yeah well said there are legitimate uses this guideline is specifically for Twitter, but many of the su- suggestions can apply to other social media as well. But I'm not exactly sure how well they travel, so choose carefully. So on to what, what he starts off with. He says, many people are starting to get politically active in ways they fear might have negative repercussions for their job, career, or life. It is important to realize that these fears are real, but the public overt resistance is critical for for political legitimacy. This guide hopes to help reduce the personal risks to individuals while empowering their ability to act safely. I am not an activist, and I almost certainly don't live in your country. These guidelines are generic with the hope that they'll be useful for a larger number of people. Now, I think you sort of have to think about that for a little while. Why would an activist be in any danger? Yeah, no, it's this. Just isn't someone who's talking about, for example, climate change. They haven't been under attack lately, have they? No, no, not no. at all. No. How about giving me a list of all your climate change scientists, please? Pretty please? Thank you. No, don't do that. So, he starts off then with security principles to live by. The basic principles of operational security are actually very simple. They're what we call the three C's: cover concealment and compartmentation. I always have trouble with that word. So from there, he goes into detail about what the these d- different um, categories are. There is more there is more to serious counterintelligence, of course, but keep these three concepts in mind. The two most important concerns will be compartmentation and concealment. In practice, this means that you need to separate your resistance Twitter account from your personal life completely. Oh, that's a good point, yeah. So basically, you're going to be living two lives. Um, ha- have two different accounts, never let them meet. Right. Never.
0: In some cases, that may mean two separate devices, right?
1: Yes. I agree. That's a very good idea, too. So, the current compartmentation rules. Create a new unique email address specifically and only for this Twitter account. In other words, don't use it for anything else, only this Twitter account. There are a lot of options here, but seriously consider using SIGAINT or another non-US service. There are two things here. SIGAINT to me reminds me of SIGINT, which oh, yes. is signals intelligence. But I think this is a pun meaning, no, you're not going to get any signal off this account, off this service. The other thing is use a non-U.S. service because uh, most agencies tend to be very persuasive within the U.S. and are able to get information. Um, uh, Other services overseas aren't so cooperative. Right. It helps that they've got the…
0: pressure here, for, especially for like Twitter, you know, is an American company, that sort of thing. But so you should, you should, if you're using yes. other services, be aware of, be aware of, you know, what country they are home-based in and yep. who may have influence over them.
1: Yep. Always use Tor when accessing this account. Never use it for anything except your resistance, Twitter. So basically create a special email address, create a special Twitter account. The two are matched. They are only used for each other. All right. Now, one of the things about Twitter lately is it wants to collect a phone number, and it makes it very hard to use a Twitter account without supplying a phone number. So you'll need a burner phone or get a disposable VoIP number. I don't recommend using Google Voice, he says, because it is vulnerable to a state-level advers- adversary. Other services might be as well. So. Get something third-party overseas, do that. Do, Do not link it to your regular phone number because that's easily identifiable. So use Tor for creating your Twitter account. And all access to the Twitter account has to go through Tor. Why? Because the IP address, along with any cookies and other trackers, will be available to Twitter and potentially investigative journalists or media. So if you happen to be somewhere else and it sends um, a cookie to your site and that cookie winds up going back to Twitter, that's not good. Right. You don't want that happening.
0: Right. And it may then be easier to co-locate you. We can see like, oh, hey, both of these accounts were active from this IP at the same yes. time range. It just yes. makes it much easier for it to follow yes. those kinds of breadcrumbs.
1: Yep. So don't use your smartphone Twitter app for the account. Mm-hmm. The IP address of the phone will be directly linked to your phone account and you'll be at a high risk of exposure via technical means. If you must use Twitter on your phone, and I personally don't recommend it for for these purposes, make it a dedicated phone only for that account with no additional information on it, such as personal contacts, photos, etc. Because, you know, someone might just know how to break into that phone remotely and start downloading stuff. And if all that's on there is your Twitter account, that's good. But if it's personal information, it'll identify you.
0: Right. Even if you just have like a you know one of your personal contacts in there, boom, done. Yep.
1: There's the link. Yep. Use the phone only for that Twitter account. Additionally, it's a good idea for you to use Tor, Orbit, uh, on an Android phone, or a VPN. Algo if you're technical, Fido Me if you're not to exposure to minimize your exposure. Uh, I would just much rather use uh, a special dedicated laptop for doing this and always use Tor. Set, set the lap, laptop up so it only uses Tor and that's all you use it for is is for this account.
0: Right, maybe you can use something like Tails or one of those systems where you know it's a, it's a live operating system, it boots right in, it doesn't remember anything, everything's mounted in RAM yep. and it's Tor by default.
1: And it might make sense to pick up a used laptop. Sure. Yeah, maybe just like an old
0: ThinkPad off eBay or something, something you can find local maybe. Uh, even
1: n- not. I would go into a shop and pay cash. Yeah, that's probably the best way. S- some some little secondhand shop and pay, pay cash. Uh, don't do it over eBay because the serial number is going to oh, be sure. listed. Ramp. And they may be somehow able to exploit the connection and get information about your laptop And if the serial number winds up going down.
0: Yeah, just avoid that if if at all possible.
1: So um, this was interesting. Do not respond to DMs or direct messages or direct replies, particularly if there's a URL, because the URL can be used to capture your IP address or exploit your device. So someone tweets out something to you and they hope you click on it and you click on it to have a look at it. And what happens? Whatever the, is hosting that URL registers your IP address. You're in the logs now. You're in the logs. So don't do it. Seriously, don't click on links that are set, sent to you via ampersand or DM, particularly if they're behind a URL shortener. But just don't do it anyway.
0: It it's seems worth like pointing a, out. Oh, go on. Go ahead. I was just saying, Go it ahead. seems like same reason not to mix these things, right? Like maybe even you're opening your personal email and, oh, boom, it loaded that image file in, embedded in your HTML yep. email and you're in those logs yep. too.
1: Yep. Yep. Um, so he goes on to say, it is worth pointing out that all URLs on Twitter are redirected through Twitter's own t.co shortener and analytics. So even a safe URL from a known and trusted confidant will expose the IP address to the account that clicks it. So, don't click on links. So, basically, what he's getting at is if you're going to be posting from the special Twitter account, just post. Don't interact with anyone, anything, just post.
0: RMH in the IRC room has got just a quick question I thought was interesting. Do you know of anything, Dan, where you can unshorten those Twitter links? So, maybe you're trying to get some information on your, but, you know, is there a third-party, maybe privacy-preserving service that can output the full uh, URL?
1: If the if the URL came through on a public tweet, i.e. not a DM, any third party can see that because it's public. Sure. So there's nothing preventing them from clicking on it. So well you could you could get someone else to do it, but <laughs> no, you don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. And we'll get into that later. So theoretically you could use your private account and just click on it. From somewhere else, but uh, I wouldn't do that either.
0: Yeah, probably best to just uh, just just resist. Yep.
1: There may be a third-party tool that says, "Hey, listen, tell me what this this uh, short URL is," and it'll tell you. As so long as it doesn't log anything, you're okay there. But but how would you know? How would you know? Yep. So. Uh, The next don't. Do not interact with your personal account or the accounts of people linked to you. In other words, don't be doing a shout out from your uh, resistance account to your best mate on Twitter, because that's sure as hell going to start to identify you. In general, try to maintain a single flow of discussion. Push data out to the public. Don't get involved in discussion or do anything private on the account. There is no privacy on Twitter. And those who befriend befriend you are just as likely to be sent to turn you in as to support you. You don't need the added risk. Now, I, I, I've sort of been near someone who's been uh, persecuted over Twitter and Facebook and various other means. And I've been able to see how quickly the defenses go up and how easily it is to not trust the people that you've recently met. The people that you met before you get involved with this risky thing, they, those are usually the ones you can trust. But anyone new, no. You, you, you can't trust them because you don't know if they're there to pull information out of you, find out who you are, stuff like that. So this is indeed true. I've seen this firsthand secondhand, seeing that happen to someone else.
0: Right. And you may betray, you know, um, turns of phrase that you use or other identifying things just by getting more involved at a personal level than you would if you were doing it just to promote what you were trying to promote.
1: Turns of phrase is a very good example. That's going to come up further down. He's going to talk about that under concealment rules. So another don't. Do not follow your personal account. Follow no one. He says, or only generic accounts. I wouldn't follow anyone. That may give hints or clues. Follow no one. Do not tweet personal photos from your resistance account. I would have thought that made sense. Yeah. Don't don't do a selfie when you're trying to be concealed. That's a hilarious idea. This includes screenshots or anything of a personal nature. If you are including a picture, crop it so that details such as the phone network or other browser tabs are not visible. One thing to keep in mind is most photos or, and or screenshots contain geolocation data. But there are tools uh, that will let you scrub that. I've got one on my laptop, uh, uh, Optum or something. I think it may be called. I'm not, I'm not sure. If anyone wants to know, I'll look it up later.
0: Yeah, we'll add that to the show notes.
1: So use a generic avatar. Don't use your best selfie. Yeah. Use a generic avatar. Um, you may be tempted to use a photo or something like that, to, but make sure that it is indeed a generic photo, something you've found somewhere else. Don't right. use your own photo.
0: Something from a, a random search or something from a very generic search that anyone searching those terms could have found?
1: Yeah. There's plenty of, uh, what do they call them, where you have all these photos sitting, waiting for someone to use.
0: Oh, stock photo type things?
1: Yes. Thank you.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, concealment rules. Don't show or tell anyone about your activities. Don't even drop hints. Whatever public stance you may take in your private life, such as attending marches or rallies, signing petitions or other participation in resistance movements, tell no one about your resistance Twitter account. No one, not even your mother. The, the, not your friends, not your coworker, not your kids, not your colleagues or coworkers. The only way to keep a secret is to keep it a secret.
0: And this seems like it's one of the one of the hard, right? These are not necessarily easy rules. This is probably one of the harder ones, especially when you're, you know, you're doing something you're proud of. You want to share it. It's very tempting. Maybe something interesting is happening there. Yeah. Don't.
1: Yeah. Just resist. Oh. Uh, that that I would find that part so difficult yeah. to, to cuz it's keep. probably
0: becoming a big part of your life and you want to you know it's it's something you're taking seriously that's why you're following these rules and watching our show
1: and you're probably freaking proud of what you're doing as well and mm-hmm. you want to tell people but don't don't yeah it's not worth it the next point do not use work computers or network for your resistance activities you have no control over them they can be seized and searched without your permission you do not have a fourth amendment right over them they may Also be running spyware installed by your company or agency to monitor your activities and make sure you aren't wasting time on things like Twitter. Now he goes on to talk about uh, encryption. Do protect your devices by enabling full disk encryption using a strong password. Using a password manager, one that stores data locally rather than in the cloud is preferable. Always install patches, patch your shit. And if, against all advice, you actually use a smartphone for your Twitter account, do not use the fingerprint unlock facility.
0: Oh, that's an interesting one.
1: You can be legally or extrajudicially coerced into unlocking your device. What they're saying there is they'll beat you over the head with a rubber hose until you put your fingerprint on there. By the way, I've heard advice about a smartphone with fingerprint um, print, Unlocking. If you feel that you're about to get arrested or questioned by police, turn your phone off. Because when you turn your phone on, it requires a right. passcode.
0: That's a good point. Yeah, on the first unlock, you have to use the passcode.
1: So if you feel you're going to be at risk of having your phone confiscated, do that.
0: Hold the power down button in your pocket or you know, whatever Pull it takes. Hold the
1: power button down and let it shut off.
0: Well, that's, that's good advice.
1: Um. Now... Here, here's what you said about uh, writing. Change your writing style. Even when Change your writing style when using your resistance account. Affecting a parody style or refraining from using favorite words can be a significant help in this regard. So we, we all use cliche phrases and... Yeah, the
0: favorite stuff, the things that you lean on.
1: Don't do that. Adopt a totally different style for your writing. And before you hit post check it and review it and say, hey, listen, can I say this in less words? Am I using uh, cliches? Did I say that uh, in my personal account? Stuff like that. Just be very, very careful.
0: Yeah, it seems like one of those opportunities you should probably, you know, maybe write your, compose your post and then come back to them in a little while, edit them, review them before yep. you do it, don't do It as yep. one in one action.
1: Mm-hmm. I agree there. Do not interact with your real life friends or your real account or otherwise break or cover. Nothing you should do should be uniquely linked to your real identity or social group. So that is the end of the concealment rules. Now, the next bit. Pardon me. I have a cold. We didn't talk about that on air, but I got a bad cold. I apologize for the
0: comments. And yet, you are still here doing the show, and that's what we love about you, Here we are.
1: Here we are. Practice makes Perfect. And the quote is, amateurs practice until they get it right. Professionals practice until they can't get it wrong. I like that. I like that too. There are a lot of complicated operational rules and guides you'll have to follow strictly and with discipline. If you learn on the job, your mistakes will be linked to the account that you're trying to protect. It would be best that you go through the steps and practice these rules on a non-sensitive account. Make sure you're comfortable with them and that you know how to use the tools and that you understand what you're supposed to do. And to me, more importantly, why. Does this remind you of anything in the typical system development life cycle? What do you mean? Test. Prod. Ah, Yes. Yes.
0: Totally. Totally. Yep. Yeah. And and I I like that idea. Yeah, you're right. And so it's like, can you maintain a separate non-related Twitter account that doesn't expose, you know, isn't your main thing? Once you've done that, once you understand how all of your tweeting tools and the tools that you interact with, once you understand how Tor works, you probably need to do some, if you're going to be doing this, you should probably do some sysadmin learning anyway to understand routes and network configuration, so that you understand what's happening on your machine as well.
1: Everyone thinking about doing this should go back and read a lot of stuff written by Edward Snowden about uh, keeping things secret because he went into a great deal of detail about that. Follow his guidelines. I think uh, they'll treat you right. So some underground organizations have something they call the first and last mistake, which is when you break a security rule and it leads to discovery and exposure, You're the resistance, and you need to make sure you can use the tools of resistance without mistakes. So practice to where it is safe, get the newbie mistakes out of the way, and then implement and operate safely where it matters. That really like is this, common
0: sense advice, but it, it works. It's true.
1: But if you're just winging it, you might not think of these right. things.
0: You're more concerned about the thing that you're being an activist about or that you're trying to do... All these OPSEC things are kind of secondary.
1: So we're down into the last two sections now. The adversary. So who are you up against? There are a number of major adversaries that could lead to de-anonymization of the account user. These include, but are probably not limited to, Twitter, email phone linked to the account, law enforcement or other nation state powers, news media, investigative journalists, colleagues, friends, and family. So now what he talks about is the capabilities, intent, and opportunity are different for each of those groups, and they require different techniques to prevent exposure and protect yourself. Although it may seem daunting to face this much investigative power, there is now a great deal of control that you have to protect yourself. Much of it does not require a lot of hard work, although maintaining a strong security posture for prolonged periods of time will require discipline. Who do you know in the system development lifecycle that has to maintain a strong security posture for prolonged periods of time?
0: It seems like that would be most of operations.
1: Yes. Yes. So many times we have to say, no, you can't do that because...
0: We realize that it would be expeditious it will help get the the feature rolled out right now but it's not you know you we can't make that compromise and it's not necessarily fun and it's not necessarily easy but
1: i, I have a feeling some serious ops people would make very good resistance fighters
0: yeah i think you're right about that that's interesting sounds like a, a book
1: Now he attempts to put things into perspective, and I like this part. Remember that most of the time, authoritarian regimes don't bother with going after small fry. It is unlikely that the full force of the state will be brought against you unless you are perceived as a problem. Your biggest threat is probably going to be talking too much, and your biggest risk is probably going to be losing your job or similar, along with some public attention and scrutiny for a news cycle or two. It may be unpleasant, but you'll survive. Fear the worst fear of the thing is worse than the thing itself try not to overstress it that's typical in most civilized democracies but in some places
0: you may not be so lucky
1: res- resistance will get you locked up and you'll disappear or if you're lucky dead
0: yeah exactly it's, it this could be life or death business and in the digital world you need to understand that
1: uh, th- this whole thing reminds me, uh, I think I've mentioned before, of some people that came and talked to me at a conference once who said uh, they had a crooked judge near them and they were trying to build mm. cases against him, but they were worried about him sending the police to to their home to gather records and stuff like that. And it just so happened that at this conference, I cannot remember which one it was, uh, they were debuting uh, Anana Oh, a non-OS, it might have been a okay. Shokan conference, but um, it was a very nice uh, it might have been either a CD or a thumb drive, but you plug it into your computer, you boot from it, everything runs off the thumb drive, mm-hmm. never touches a hard drive, uh, once you power off the machine, everything's it's gone It's off, right. It doesn't, it doesn't store anything permanently in the machine, and it all runs from that thumb drive, and it had Tor and it had all that stuff nice. in it, and, and it was a very nice little system
0: yeah, that sounds perfect for this use case, something like that. Something you know, you can, you know, it's one component of the whole system, but you understand its boundaries, its limitations, yep. and where it
1: doesn't leak. Yep. And that that's key, because sometimes people don't understand the precautions they need to take, but just having the thumb drive and knowing that you have to boot off it mm-hmm. and have that special screen come up, that goes a long way to protecting um, novices.
0: Right, it's enough to be like, oh, wait... This is not your normal computer. This is not what you're not signed in with your personal account.
1: Be careful. Don't do it there. Do it here. Yeah, exactly. The last bit goes over the mental health health risks. Once you have mastered and implemented the technical protections and the security procedures to protect yourself, the biggest threat you will face is yourself. Creating and maintaining a secret identity Can be extremely stressful and requires developing a sort of compartmented identity a sharded ego a fractured self this can be very distressing and dangerous to your mental health in the long run which is why spy handlers spend a lot of time acting as psychologists for their spies providing the only safe place where they can speak freely about themselves and their concerns and finally he says seriously Consider seeing a professional psychologist, where you'll be f- protected by patient confidentiality laws, and you'll be able to talk freely about the stresses you're under. Something to consider if it starts to feel too much. And then he gives a list of security, a link to security-aware mental health experts.
0: That's great. That's a that's a very real concern, especially if you're you know if this mm-hmm. occupies a large part of your life, or you live in a country where you're under constant scrutiny. Yep. So now, d- oh, go on.
1: There is a little bit more in this article, but I didn't want to go over that because it was just examples of a of a subpoena and why cookies are important and how the the, the security forces will try and get um, track you down.
0: I see.
1: He has a summary at the end where he says, shut up, don't talk about what you're doing or who you are to anyone. Use Tor religiously. The Tor bundle browser is fine. Just make sure to close the app when you're done, so it wipes the evidence. Don't use work or school equipment; it's likely monitored. Be cautious, not paranoid, and good luck. So, I don't think I've ever read anything by this guy before, but I really like what he's written. This this is this is very sensible, uh, and I think it's a good guide for anyone thinking about, you know, perhaps becoming politically motivated lately
0: yeah i think so too uh the grug q and this is over on medium he's got his uh, pgp hash up there if you'd you'd like to check it out or send him anything thank you very much for uh bringing this up so do you think this is too much is this overkill in any way
1: um no I, i don't think like some listeners may wonder you know why bother it's just twitter you're just tweeting things out no it's a big deal they're really underestimating the bullies and the trolls. Um, people think that. it's just yeah. words, but but it's not just words. Uh, you can be doxxed. In other words, uh, personal information can be spread about you. Basically, your 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 name, your address, your family, your friends, your employer. Yeah, exactly. And this has been done to people, and people have turned up at the person's place of employment and taken photographs outside and said, oh, I just stopped by so-and-so's place for a photograph. And these people are known to be concealed carry individuals and they're showing up here. And the only way anyone can interpret that is as a threat.
0: Yes, as a threat, yes, exactly.
1: Um, basically, the, they, they send threats, they contact your employer saying, why are you hiring this person? This is a terrible person. They get in touch with uh, conference organizers and say, really, it's a bad idea for you to be letting this person talk at your conference. Uh, Should you ever get contacted by people like that, your best defense is not to reply to them at all. Just not acknowledge. And perhaps perhaps let the person in question know that you received it. Mm -hmm. They'll probably say, okay, thanks, and that's about it. But really, uh, do not feed the trolls. Yeah, just right. ignore them entirely. You may want to keep a copy of it, but do not reply.
0: Yeah, Engaging them will only spur them to keep, yeah. keep up this bad behavior.
1: If anyone wants to look up more information about how people can be attacked on Twitter, I suggest reading up on something called Gamergate, and it will lead mm-hmm. you to websites that uh, have been in the news a lot lately.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good highlight is just Yes, for many things, it's you know, it's just Twitter or or whatever you know, whatever other tool you're using. Um, but for a lot of people, a large part of their life is on there, and it's a very quick way to communicate ideas. There's a lot that can be shared. It's tied to many things. The trails run deep,
1: and people gang up. And people gang people up. Gang yes. up so it's quickly. It's a social
0: activity, and and there are there are sides, there are teams, there are you know, and then especially on the internet, like every everything. If these people, if you know, on the Internet, it's just a name or a number or an account. And so people are more mean, they're more hurtful. And it's very easy to make enemies, unfortunately.
1: Yes, especially if
0: you have strong opinions or are trying to fight for something.
1: Unpopular opinions. Unpopular
0: opinions, especially. Yes, exactly. Well, do you have anything else you'd like to add on that one, Dan?
1: No, but if you are considering being resistive, this is a good place to start. I recommend it.
0: Yeah, I think that was a great article. All right. Well, with that, let's go to our next sponsor, which is Ting. What is Ting? Ting is mobile that just makes sense. They're on a mission to make mobile make sense. How do they do that? They do that by being a no BS mobile service. It's an NVMO of Sprint and T-Mobile. So yeah, that's right. They've got CDMA and GSM. And guess what? you can start using Ting. Just go to techsnap.ting.com. You'll get a $25 service credit or if you're going to buy from Ting, just head over to their shop. Hey, check it out right here. They've got great deals on unlocked phones or SIM cards. Hey, right there starting from $9 or get yourself the Alcatel one touch fling. Maybe you just need an extra phone. You want a backup phone when you're out on the road, $20. Come on. That's so easy. Or, yeah, go go a little bit. You can splurge. They've got Android phones, or you can bring your own phone. You know, buy your favorite phone from uh, from the the Big Apple or or from Google. Bring it right over. Ting doesn't care. They encourage this. They are nerds just like us. That's that's why uh, one of the things I love about Ting. Plus, it all starts at six dollars a month. Then you pay just for what you use: minutes, messages, megabytes. That's it. There's no overage charges. There's no penalties. Ting understands you're an adult. Plus, they like cord cutting. They have frequent tips. Go over to their blog. They'll show you the latest way to get, you know, maybe you don't want to pay for a cable bill every month. Ting's great with that. You want to stream it over your Ting line? That's fine. You pay for what you use. You want to tether because you're a busy professional traveling from coffee shop to coffee shop, and you want to run your own VPN on your phone and then tether through that? Great. Ting supports that too. Go check out Ting. Use promo code, or you go to texnap.ting.com. You don't even need a promo code. Just go to techsnap.ting.com. It's so easy. Unlimited devices on one plan. It's great for businesses. Excellent online support. Plus, they they have apps. So you don't even have to, you know, you don't have to call them. You can call them. I encourage you to call them. You'll find wonderful, pleasant people. They have real humans to talk to. They know how to give good support. But you don't have to because everything on the website, they've just made it so easy, so straightforward. Go over to techsnap.ting.com. And thank you, Ting, for sponsoring the TechSnap program. All right. Well, what's our next story, Dan?
1: Well, it's all about skimmers lately. But skimmers are the thing that you get on the card readers. But apparently shimmers are much more interesting now. Um, It's the first I've heard of them, but I do recall reading about something similar. But I never heard them referred to as shimmers before. So basically, uh, lately you've been reading about uh, when you go up to an ATM or a cash machine or even the gas pump sort of reach over and sort of pull at the card reader just to make sure it's not something that's mounted on the front of it. Um, but that's not enough anymore. Now they're inside the slot where you insert your card, and the only detection that you may feel is that it's slightly sticky when it goes in and out. So consumers and retails to be on guard. There's a new and more devious way for fraudsters to steal your card and debit information. Shimmers are the latest form of credit card schemers, only smaller, more powerful, and practically impossible to detect. And they're popping up all over the place, says RCMP Corporal Michael McLaughlin, who sounded the alarm after four shimmers were extracted from checkout card readers in Coquitlam, B.C. Something this sophisticated, this organized, and multi-jurisdictional has all the classic hallmarks of organized crime. Now, we have to remember that Coquitlam is a fairly significant city in in, in British Columbia. Um,
0: Thank you for doing the uh, Canadian translation for us.
1: You're welcome. But I have a feeling that they don't experience a lot of this stuff. I'm sure it's much more common in bigger, bigger uh, U.S. cities and in um, European cities. So, unlike skimmers, a shimmer, named for its slim profile fits inside a card reader and can be installed quickly and unobtrusively by a criminal who slides it in the machine while pretending to make a purchase or withdrawal. Once installed, the microchips in the Shimmer record information from chip cards, including the pin. That information is later extracted when the criminal inserts a special card, also during a purchase or cash withdrawal, which downloads the data. The information is then used to make fake cards. And fake cards are a big deal. Oh wow! Shimmers have rendered the bigger and bulkier shimmers, virtually skimmers, virtually obsolete, according to Constable Alex Bochek of the Coquitlam RCMP Economic Crime Unit. You can't see a shimmer from the outside like the old skimmer version, Bochek said in a statement. Businesses and consumers should immediately report anything abnormal about the way their card is acting, especially if the card is sticking inside the machine. McLaughlin said the Coquitlam retailer detected the shimmers through its newly introduced daily testing of -of point-of-sales terminals. A test card inserted into the machines kept on getting stuck, and the shimmers were found when the terminals were opened. We want to get the word out," said McLaughlin. Businesses really need to be checking for these kinds of devices, and consumers need to be aware of them. Bochek said the using the tap function of a chip card is one way to avoid being shimmed. It's actually very secure, he says. Each tap transfers very limited banking information, which can't be used to clone your card, he said. Now, have you used the tap mechanism in your cards?
0: No, I have not actually. I've used, you know, I've used a cell phone uh, NFC payment type thing, but I've not used the the tap with the enabled card before.
1: Uh, I remember an app that used uh, a cell phone app, which used to exchange information with someone. So you would both pull up the information okay. page with your personal details, and then you would bump them together, and yeah, that, you know, that send sounds a, really familiar. I think that would send a signal to the server with a timestamp on it, and if the timestamps. your two bumps were within a certain region that proved that you're both in the same spot at the same time Mm -hmm. because it'd be kind of hard to fake Fake that that. time yeah
0: it's a reasonable way to like co-locate those two things in space and time
1: so the the tap may be the same thing the device i don't know if the device registers a tap or if the card registers Mm -hmm. a tap but i think i would imagine that that would be something that you could consider when you're trying to make something a little more secure.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a, I think that's a really good point.
1: So, two final points about this. Mm-hmm. Krebs wrote about this uh, just a couple of days ago, and he has a post which is all about skimmers and shimmers. So, if you go and have a look, look at his, his post, it is interesting. Um, and he also goes in to say it's not new tech, uh, and he wrote about something uh, which was found in 2015. So it's not new. It's just becoming more widespread is my um, interpretation of, of what he's saying.
0: Right, right. We're starting to see this used by more and
1: more people. The, these things are really cool. I it think is it's really, very clever.
0: It is very clever. I mean, it's unethical. It's dangerous. It's terrible. <laughs> it's, but it's also it's, really
1: cool. Yeah. And it's illegal. <laughs>
0: and I feel like I just kind of, you know, I'd learned and I'd kind of told family members to beware, you know, like like you're saying, like jiggle things or try to make sure that it looks like it's... It really is from the factory; it hasn't been modified. But with things like this, it seems like it's getting to the point where it's almost impossible for the end user of the machine to be able to tell.
1: Uh, novices have no chance at all.
0: How are you? If you and then I mean, and then what? How each time you're going to spend like five minutes before you use the terminal, kind of just like poking and prodding and sticking in a test piece of paper.
1: Yep. Yep.
0: So it really seems like maybe businesses and ATM providers need to be doing more checking, more auditing. Have better controls so that this can't be inserted.
1: Historically, uh, public devices have not been very secure. Right. They're, they're getting better. Uh, think about voting machines.
0: Mm, hmm. Yep. That's <laughs> uh, just a bit topical. Yeah, and I I love the the angle where they can put it in. You know they they slide it in. Maybe they can even slide it in with their card the first time. You know, and then it's planted yep. in. They withdraw some money just like normal. They come back a couple of days later and boom. That's insidious. Hmm.
1: Anything it's else you'd very, like to add? It's very, very clever.
0: Yeah. It really is. Anything else you'd like to add on this story,
1: Dan? No, that's it. Thank you.
0: Yeah, oh absolutely. Thank you for sharing with us. And with that, we will come to our final sponsor for the evening, which is IX Systems. Head over to IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. IX Systems is the hardware provider you wish you had learned about years ago they build awesome servers powered by amazing intel processors and they have got these great relationships with the providers right so if you want the latest the greatest Kp lake system maybe you're still using Skylake. ix systems can get it for you they've, they've got it right when it's out or maybe you need a couple generations ago and you need a very certain model right you have you have this motherboard already you know it'll work or you need a certain motherboard that'll fit just right in the case. I know Alan had some of these where you needed this motherboard to fit in the case so they get the right number of GPUs, et cetera, et cetera. iX Systems has had so much experience with this. That is what they are best at. They've got talented sales engineers who want to work with you. That's the whole thing. You can, you know, they have, yes, they have their awesome free NAS Mini. It's on Amazon. You can just buy it. But I wouldn't even do that. I would just go check out iXsystems.com slash tech snap. That lets them know that we sent you, that you like our program, and that you like IX Systems. Doing that, you give them a call, send them an email, and then you will start an amazing process where together you will work together to build the perfect server that fits just your needs. And so maybe you just have small needs. Maybe all you need is a new backup server for your pictures, for the kids' pictures, for the small office. Or maybe you work at a big government agency or for a big corporation and you have serious data needs. If that's you, check out IX Systems. I don't know about you, but I've always had my eyes on one of their true racks, a powerful, flexible rack-scale architecture that takes the guesswork out of building large-scale data center applications. See, and so that's that's one of the things. For iX, don't go and just buy a server from the big box server company where you have to guess. Oh, do I need a SAS expander? How many drive bays? What's the right CPU clock frequency for my workload? Sure, you can do that. And if you want to become a server-building expert, or maybe you are one or you think you are, call iX Systems. They will show you just what you're missing out they have companies ranging from big to small check them out iaxsystemscom slash tech snap and thank you to ix Systems for sponsoring the show okay and with that we will transition to the feedback and that brings us to our feedback what's what have we got in the roster this week dan
1: well, someone wrote in about my two favorite topics: FreeBSD and Bacula as a portable hey, VM.
0: That looks perfect for the show. Great,
1: it is perfect for the show. So, where did I put it? There it is. So,
0: so this is from uh, Nico.
1: Yes. Now, Nico is trying to do uh, backups and Bacula on the cheap by using a portable VM. Now, I'm not really sure how how well this is going to work for him but I did look up some stuff just before the show and he may be able to do it. So he says, hey guys, trying to set up my personal backup uh, game from manually copying, he's trying to step up his personal backup game by manually copying files or running jobs on a handful of computers. He's got two MacBooks and two Win PCs, And since I just heard Dan is the backup man, here I go. (laughs) He's setting up a VM to run and learn in the process FreeBSD. Good choice. I'll set the VM files to live on an external 2-terabyte drive with the intention that I'll spin it up to run backups no matter where I'm running it from. So I guess he wants to be able to carry the external drive with him and have his VM on there, and it'll do the backups onto there. So he could then just
0: start it from any computer, start the VM, plug in the external hard drive, and he'd be ready to Go. go.
1: Go to one computer, back it up, go to the next one, back that one up. So he's currently using VMware Workstation, which he has running on both his Windows 10 PCs, because he doesn't have any servers at home at the moment. Okay. If he it does, it'd be easy enough to copy his VM into it. Anyway, he's seeking some guidance and approach, guidance and feedback on his approach. Number one, would it be better to run the VM OS on one of my PCs which have SSDs and present the external drive directly to the VM for the actual backup files? I, I think what you should do is have, is just something like that. Have the VM running in a fixed location all the time and have it reach out to the other, other systems and pull the data in. Otherwise it's not your client server approach. I'm really not sure how you're gonna have a Bacula F D on each box and back it up that way. Bacula is more of a uh, more of a push solution than it is a pull solution. So it's not gonna I don't think it's gonna work with, with your single external hard drive going from machine to machine.
0: Huh. Yeah. No, that's kind of interesting that um it's an interesting approach to try to make work and i can see why it it seems very convenient um but you're right that if you're using bacula like that you might there's some considerations
1: so number two he goes on to the vm wouldn't be on 24 seven, but would be on at least a few times a week enough to let backups start and finish if bacula hasn't run in a few days will it run the highest priority job that device needs a full backs are on Sunday if Bacula was off, would it run? Yeah. Yes, it would run. Um, basically it expires the old jobs and the new job will be a full, even if it was supposed to run on Sunday and didn't run today. You will see the concept of a uh, a job elevation or an escalation i forget what the term is but basically it's scheduled to run as full today uh, full on sunday but it didn't run so on wednesday when it's scheduled to run as an incremental it'll actually be elevated to a full See, so that part that part will work
0: it's good to know that it has that um you know it's like got a it, it that it has smart scheduling built in because this is something you could maybe set up with anacron or similar tools but you'd have to do a lot of work with less feature-filled backup solutions to recreate and have that kind of peace of mind.
1: Yeah. Uh, Bacula doesn't run from a cron job. It's, uh, it has its own internal mm-hmm. schedule and it d- does it all from there. So he's got an advantage there. Now, the next thing is, how would you approach my scenario while keeping cost at zero and providing some good self-taught learning? I would get the FreeBSD installed, get it running, uh, install Bacula, uh DUR on there, install the Bacula clients on the other machines and get them to talk to the VM that you installed somewhere else. Um, you also need a database server. Uh, you're quickly getting very strong here. So I would put this on whatever machine you have that is the fastest. Right. So
0: now you have multiple services that you're running that that that, and then maybe the SSD would be nice too for some things.
1: Yes, get I'd put it on the SSD definitely. Don't put this on spinning.
0: So for the architecture, um, what what is used? What is the database used for? And obviously, I assume you would recommend Postgres. Uh, Yeah,
1: Yeah, yes, I would. Uh, The database is what Bacula uses for a catalog. And the catalog is a list of what was backed up from what computer, where it is now, uh, some checksums, some file size information, uh, and permissions, I think. So everything it needs in order to restore it and make sure that the file it restored was the file that it originally backed up.
0: But he wouldn't need to plan necessarily for anything like the space he might need for the actual backups. It's mostly more metadata. I guess is what I'm asking.
1: It, it's meta it metadata, but if you have a lot of large, a few large files, the metadata is going to be relatively small. Mm-hmm. But if you have thousands and thousands of small files, oh, your I metadata see. is going to be relatively big. That can balloon pretty because quick. the metadata for each file is more or less a constant. Okay. So it scales with the number of files that you're backing up.
0: That is excellent operational knowledge.
1: Now. Uh, I'm I'm not sure how I would go about this. Uh, I would try and get a dedicated machine. Um, I, I would install the VM on the fastest box you have. And I did read that there is a way to make an external two terabyte, well, any two any external hard drive available to your VM. I don't know how well it works, but I would be interested in you trying it out and getting back to us and letting us know how that works.
0: Yeah, no, that's um. Yeah, it does seem like that 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 could work, but you're doing a little bit of fighting against the nature of your of your tool, maybe, or you need to do a certain amount of bootstrapping, and you need to get a good workflow down so that you know where's your home base, make sure everything can talk to your database server and mm-hmm. everything else, and then yep. once you've got that done, then you get all the wins of Bakula, and you can plug things in and just make sure you're on your schedule and it'll work.
1: Uh, start with backing up. Your host first, mm-hmm. right, and then add the other ones. Uh, it, I, I ho- he didn't say, but I think everything's on one network, mm-hmm. so that will help. Except the fact that most stuff in a VM winds up being on a separate subnet, does not.
0: Depending on how you do it, you know, and it depends on what virtual machine thing you use. So yeah. it may have its own layer of NAT involved, or if you can, obviously, just get it bridged onto your own network. That'll make it the easiest yeah. case.
1: Yes, don't don't do that for that if you can avoid it because the clients have to call in Into to the, the
0: right. So then you have to then you're trying to do port forward. That, oh god, just don't. All right. Uh, any other tips? It does seem like like there's a lot of learning here to do. There's a lot of architecture kind of and maybe doing some tests to make sure it's going to work. But I think once he's done that, I think it is a good path for learning and that there's a lot to learn here. And once you've made all of this work you will definitely understand how bacula works, how He'll install, learn.
1: yeah, right. There will be a lot learned. Exactly, well said.
0: <clears throat> All right, on to our next piece of feedback from Gary. Bank security or lack of? What's this one about?
1: Well, I was kind of surprised when I read this. Uh, he starts off by saying, when I log into my bank, I put in my user account number and on the next page, confirm a recognized photograph and a sentence and then on the final page put in a five digit pin number there isn't any dongle or any other security measures so i know that a previous bank used to do that they, they used to have it set up so that you would uh, enter in your your account number then you'd be shown a photograph that you selected when you originally uh, registered your account and there'd be a phrase under it and yes i've seen that as well th- that would help uh, that would the goal of that is to, to to stop spoofed websites trying to collect your login information because they don't know what your magic...
0: Right. In theory, unless they've had a compromise, they can't know what picture and phrase that you've
1: chosen. Correct. So his concern is the password. The password is only five digits. So he's wondering how easy is it to break through that. I think that's what he's getting at. So when he went to change his password, or as they call it, PIN number, I still could only use five numbers and no other characters. But they call it a PIN and not a password. I'm not very happy about that. It's a large bank here in England called Santander. Now, Santander is also around here, not just in England. I'm sure it's the same bank. I can't imagine it's two separate banks. He goes on. How worried should I be? Or is this similar to when I use the option to encrypt my home dictionary when I set up my Ubuntu laptop? It unlocks using only my eight-digit login password, but the system prompted me to make a note of a 32-character long passphrase that would be required, presumably, if I put the drive in another machine. Is this to do with the login keychain system? Is the bank doing something similar? The bad guys still only need to guess five numbers, don't they? I hope you get what i say, trying to say, and I hope you can make these things clearer to me. If you walk up to an ATM, usually you only get four digits to enter. So if you've got the card and everything, you can enter those four digits. So conceivably the website is more secure with five digits, but then you can easily brute force a password on the web. So, unless Santander has some sort of brute force detection and stops these attempts, then they're going to get broken into. But I'm sure they would have something like that. I can't imagine that they wouldn't have something to detect that. Oh look this past, this account has been tried fifteen times in the past second.
0: We should just keep let them you know keep trying. That's mm. fine. Yeah, it does seem like um, banks, in particular large institutions, have ossified a little bit in terms of their technology stack, right? Many of them have software that's been running for the better part of a decade. They can't yep. always change or update the you know their schemas to reflect modern password requirements. And so it seems like they've made a trade operationally for mm-hmm. doing some sorts of monitoring, getting the best that they can at the front end, and then having some back end systems to keep track of that kind of thing. I know yep. I was recently opening um, like an IRA account at a big firm and I ran into the same thing where I was like, I can't use my password manager to generate a password. I can't use any of my standard passwords, you know, the ones that I use for throwaway or to, when I'm just registering yeah. it. Yeah. The requirements are too bad. Uh, yeah. So you just kind of have to hope or if you can try to find a better provider, or more secure bank.
1: What I find infuriating is when they say you can't use an ampersand. <sighs> yeah. Can't use a bang can't use parentheses you're really limiting can't, our can't, options yeah can't use greater than
0: signs and it always makes me wonder like do you just have when you were developing this did you just not understand how to do escaping or you were too lazy or too much of a rush or you just don't have those requirements
1: i have a function called html of
0: mm, nice just to uh uri encode whatever yep oh nice Yep. that seems
1: very handy and it just sends it all out and it's done. And it also makes hyperlinks out of HTML, HTTP, and HTTPS stuff. So That's super it just handy. sends it all out there. Huh. So, I hope you're good. I tried to look this up and find any information about it. Not specifically your bank, but just the concept in general. But yes, I hope they're doing it right. But I'm sure that if someone breaks into your account and they steal your money, that it's the bank's fault, not your fault. I certainly hope so. But yeah, you, uh, if you have a choice, and I hope you have a choice, try somewhere else, because this doesn't sound very good to me. Oh, and by the way, hi, Ryan.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. It's it's rough that there are, uh, there's not always options for people. Um are you satisfied with the providers in your life? Do you have any troublesome institutions like this that have requirements that you're not satisfied with? Or have you been able to keep it to kind of a set that works for you? Like, I know I, one of my banks, it's, it seems pretty reasonable. Um, I've, had them, you know, I've had issues before, and they've always caught them quickly, so I'm not as worried. But it's one of those things I try to evaluate when I'm checking out a new financial institution.
1: I was in New York a month or so ago. And I made two purchases at uh, an electronics store while I was there. Nice. I was still in the store when the bank called me. <laughs> wow. That's great. That is very good. Mm-hmm. Are these your purchases, sir? Which ones you mean? Oh, here and at an electronics store. Electronics, I haven't been in electronics store. They then told me the name of the shop. I said, oh, yes, I was in there. I bought these two things. Mm-hmm. It's just trivial little things that you've forgotten at home that you needed. Yeah,
0: totally. So I just
1: picked pick them up near, nearby. And But yeah, that bank has done that several times in terms of catching me still in the store when I've made a purchase.
0: You're almost like, well, I don't know. I wasn't sure the purchase
1: had finished yet. <laughs> and this was RBC Royal Bank of Canada hmm, okay that's uh, they have branch they have branches down in the states
0: it seems like to me as well the um especially like what you're talking about there there can be a lot of confusion about when you're trying to verify I think like did I make that purchase or not was it fraudulent so having that like a bank that can do that really quick response yeah seems to make it makes makes it better for everyone
1: And they have also replaced my credit card on very short notice. Like, I've gotten a new one within two or three days when they've noticed someone down in Kentucky is buying hardware with my card. How they got down there, I don't know. Nobody knows.
0: And that brings us to our Rockin' Roundup. What's our first story, Dan?
1: Our first story is about a hotel ransomed by hackers as guests were locked out of their rooms.
0: Oh, my, that sounds terrible. And as a hotel guest, I would be quite frustrated. Tell us more.
1: Well, it's the old uh, crypto locker or um, we're going to ransom your computer off by encrypting all the files and you can't do anything with it. So apparently someone clicked on the wrong thing. And their computer systems got compromised. And while the guests uh, could get out of their rooms easily, they could not get back in because it was all key card readers. So the attack, which coincided with the opening weekend of the winter season, was allegedly so massive that it even shut down all hotel computers, including the reservation system and the cash desk. So after they paid 1,500 euros, they got it all back. But um, this this would be interesting. Imagine all, all your hundred and... How many guests was it? 180? Something like that? 180 mm-hmm. rooms? No. I wouldn't know what to do.
0: No. And that's one of those things, like uh, key cards are very convenient things, but I've had this thought about, like, the apartment building I live in, um, or past apartment buildings, where if something goes wrong, or even like a power outage, there's a lot of times where it's like, well, suddenly my only way of navigating through this building is done. What do I do? Yep. What's my backup plan? And like the building has those plans, and obviously they did as well, except not a great one, um, but a tiny little glitch in this. And what are you? What are you gonna do? Well, you have to either pay money, or you have better trained staff, or you yep. know contractors that you can call in to help you. But that's none yep. of those are good options.
1: Or don't let everybody write to everything. Yes, right. <laughs> yeah. Uh do you do you have a flashlight just inside your front door?
0: I don't know that I do. Yeah, actually no. I have one uh I have one on the counter somewhere. So it is ready. I should put it right by the door though. That's a great idea.
1: Yeah. So I've got the keys on a shelf uh, like a uh, a key rack above the shelf and then just below it just inside there is a is a flashlight.
0: Okay. Oh, I like that. That's a good idea. Okay. Well, okay. Uh, anything else to add on this first one
1: uh, no i just find it very interesting that yeah. uh, they're, they're they're changing back to uh, old fashioned locks with keys
0: really wow that is uh that's quite a big change but um, it gives you a lot more cha- it gives you a lot more actual local control and if you don't have the in-house op- expertise to manage these big complex systems then yeah maybe it is a better choice to go back to the simple old school mm mm-hmm. mhm Our computers kept crashing, so, you know, we got typewriters. But, hey, if it works.
1: Okay, next up, what do we got? ShmooCon videos. If you've never heard of ShmooCon, I've been to two of their conferences, and they are very good. It's uh, in Washington, D.C., or somewhere in that area. And uh, it's always about this time of year, and um, their videos are out. The conference was two weeks ago, on the 15th. Yeah, it's about two weeks ago. So they have forty-one videos up here, and I would recommend going in and watching them all. Just put them on in the background, much like you do a uh, TechSnap podcast, and just listen to them because you will probably learn something very interesting.
0: Yeah, it looks like they got some interesting stuff in here. Uh, UTF zero secure hardware design, DIY mass production, and Amazon Prime like that's uh, that's interesting stuff. For thirty-five years of cyber war, the squirrels are winning. I will definitely do that. And I'm always looking for more more talks to have in the background, that kind of like good mix of technical stuff where sometimes it's exactly what you want and you sit there and you listen for a half hour solidly or you're working on something else or you're updating SSL on your servers and you need something a little bit more interesting in the background. Have you watched I mean, any of these ones?
1: No, I haven't. I only just found this uh, yesterday. But I've been to, like I said, two of these conferences and some of the more interesting ones were... Lock picking. That was very interesting. Learning how to pick locks.
0: Oh, yeah, that's interest. That's fascinating stuff. Okay. And well.
1: these talks vary, vary from 20 minutes to two hours, I think. So you should be able to get through it in a week or two.
0: There's something for
1: everyone. Indeed.
0: Okay. And then on to our next topic. What is this?
1: This is an interesting Google SRE. So it's their site reliability engineering uh, document. This actually came up at work today. Uh, someone pasted this into one of the work channels. And it's, I think what they've done is they've gathered all the knowledge of all their SREs, which are site reliability engineers. So those, those are the people that are responsible for making sure that the systems are running. These are the people that get paged in the middle of the night and they do everything they can not to be paged um i know a couple of these people uh that are either still current or are former sres and they're very clever people they 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 know a lot and they're certainly beyond uh my capabilities
0: yeah i think that's something i've always found interesting about that is they i mean it sounds like from hearing insider reports google the way google runs now really does depend on having these excellent sres and they kind of form this um this, this hybrid where they are, you know, they they focus on site reliability, operational health, and that thing, but they're also very skilled. They know they end up learning a lot about the products. Uh, they have development skills. They are tasked to challenge, you know, solve problems at scale, improve the tool sets that are cross cutting concerns across the whole organization. So it's really neat to have a whole book of their like top tips, best practices, the operational knowledge kind of distilled for you.
1: Yes. Um, I'm sure that a lot of people are going to be reading this. It, it's not going to um, it's not not going to impinge on google's territory this stuff but it, it'll certainly help a lot of other organizations up their game
0: exactly okay up next booted up in 1993 this server still runs but not for much longer time is running out on a system that never had an unplanned downtime wow 1993
1: yep uh Geeks are always uh, sort of mixed about bragging about uptime. On yep. one hand, your uptime means it's very reliable; it's not gone down accidentally. But on the other hand, have you patched it?
0: Yeah, exactly. Are you running the latest software? Have you patched your yep. S?
1: And lately, we've had to do a lot of patching.
0: And there's this old, wow. like uh, you know, old style kind of admin stuff where, yeah, well, we configured it all, but we don't ever have to reboot it. So why would we have enabled the Surface at boot? Or you know, if you if you're not rebooting it, you might not know that even on an unplanned failure. Does it come back up?
1: Yep. Uh, Michael Lucas once told me that all services must start at boot time. Uh, if they're not and you have to go in manually, you're going to get stuck in the middle of the night going in and fixing something. But the, the, this machine is very impressive in terms of the length of time that it's been running and the fact that it's a system from 1993 still running. Not, not the fact that it's still up. Just running at all but still running from back then. I think it's very impressive. Uh, They they held a contest in in 2010, and they learned uh, of other older systems, but this is the one that won back then, and it's still the winner now.
0: So tell us more. What is this this server doing? Or system, or whatever?
1: Well, it's a fault-tolerant system, and... Never shut down on its own because of a fault it couldn't handle. Wow! But they don't have a maintenance contract. They buy third party. They buy parts from a third party vendor, but they say that Stratus, the manufacturer, may probably still has parts for it in stock. Uh, even though the system has a character-driven interface similar to an old green screen system, nice. the users like the reliability of it, and the screens are actually pretty simple. It's. I don't think they actually go into any detail of what it is, but um, Great Lakes Works is now part of United Steel Corp after a deal completed in 2015, and there's a plan to upgrade the system in April uh, of this year, and at that point, the Stratus will be retired. Um, That's They're not sad. quite sure what they're going to do with it afterwards.
0: Maybe you'll see it on a uh, state auction site near you. Get a little yeah, piece ima- of history.
1: I cannot imagine the power consumption required oh there. Gosh,
0: yes, uh, that's the unfortunate part. It's like I have a, I've had some of those old systems that I've come across or friends had, and it. it's like, well, I could plug it in, it still works, but do I want to try to support it? The answer to that has been you,
1: no. You can heat your home with your own personal rack.
0: Be like Dan. Don't pay a power bill, or don't. Well, yeah, pay don't a power bill. Don't pay a heating bill. There we go. Get yeah. the wrong one. Okay, next topic DigitalOcean SSH key authentication security risk. This is important. We've got a lot of DigitalOcean fans here. Tell us more.
1: Um, the easiest way to describe it is if you install a droplet, then take a snapshot of that droplet, and then create a new droplet from that snapshot, the Etsy SSH SSHD config file is not what you expected it to be. They've added back in password authentication equals yes. So that's a big deal for some people. Um, If you have monitoring of your system to see whether or not port 22 is answering, you can easily do it to see whether or not you get a password prompt. And if you don't, then you're okay. So you could add that into your monitoring. Um, Apparently, this problem has been fixed already. But uh, it was an issue for a while. Um, it's I don't know how many people it's actually affecting. I don't know if, it, if it's all Ubuntu or if they're doing this to all the operating systems. I don't remember this happening to my FreeBSD droplet. Not at all. But I will check it. But I know that I already have a check to see whether or not password whether port 22 is open. That's I've got not- it rather well restricted anyway, so not everyone can even get to a prompt
0: yeah and you know and it may not affect you as much if you have something you know like first boot scripts or other things that are customizing or running configuration management to provision a server but i know i've certainly done it before um and had confidence in that like oh yeah i just spun the server up and i'm not i don't have time to i was going to test it on something or, or whatever uh knowing that yes well it only has my key and my key is good so it should be fine but it's uh, good to have this talked about i'm glad i'm aware of it i will definitely go yep. double check my servers
1: they were talking to DigitalOcean about it for a while, and I think they've got it resolved now. Um, the original plan was to make it easier to get into the droplet once it's right. first spun up. But the pattern that I think they're using here is, I have one one droplet here and I'm going to replicate it all over. Yeah. So I think, think that that was the use case, and the original use case I think was just different from what it was being used for.
0: All right. Well, uh, go check that. Go check yours. Make sure your SSH configuration is something that is worth getting right. Okay. HP recalls 101,000 laptop batteries due to fire concerns. Yikes. I am glad I don't have an HP laptop.
1: Yep. Um, the Consumer Product Safety Commission has issued a notice about the recall, which affects around 101,000 computers. Computers, not not cell phones, but computers. And their HP Compaq, HP ProBook, HP Envy, Compact Berseria, and HP Pavilion laptops. Purchased between March 2013 and October 2016. May want to check their battery. If the barcode starts with one of these values... Company says the best course of action is to pull it out and ask for a free replacement. <sighs> Melting, charring, That's battery terrifying. overheating, $1,000 in property damage.
0: These are all scary, scary phrases. I mean, batteries are serious technology. You know, there's a lot of uh, confined metals and other such dangerous chemicals. We've seen a lot yep. of like the Samsung stuff. It's hard technology to get right. So it's, I guess in one sense, it's not yep. really surprising. Um, and it does sound like they're doing the good thing of you know giving you free replacements etc yep. so that's good to see but uh, watch out i think i think some of my family just got a new hp laptop so but you said this was uh, it's no longer the case it was affected certain years right oh yeah okay march 2013 through october 2016
1: yeah so anything you bought check. in the past you know anything you bought in the past month is, so it should be okay. okay oh no those are manufactured da- oh purchase dates yeah okay i think they're okay now perfect
0: All right. Well, now we've got a Krebs story, a shakeup in Russia's top cybercrime
1: unit. Yep. So this is a case of the police, well, the the police being arrested in effect. So basically someone in a top cybercrime unit was arrested during a meeting and and taken out of the building with a bag over his head. He's been charged with treason, which basically keeps all the details of the charges and, and the court case secret. So, we may not see from this person ever again. And this is one of the top uh, people within the uh, K- Kaspersky Lab, which is a big deal.
0: That is a big deal, yeah,
1: absolutely. That's a big deal. So, it'll be interesting to see where this goes.
0: Russia is an interesting place these days, and
1: uh, clearly
0: there's a lot of connections behind the scenes that maybe we don't get the full story
1: on here. so We'll have to check back in with
0: Krebs on this later.
1: Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of things going on that we don't know about in this story.
0: Okay, so for an entirely different twist, now we've got something about hardening Windows 10 with zero-day exploit mitigations under the microscope. Windows 10 is not something we always talk about, or when we do, we kind of talk about the, how is Windows getting exploited, Uh, so this is a nice twist on that.
1: Um... I'll give you the overview. Uh, the author was looking at um, a vulnerability, some, something that had uh, he had recently been investigating. I got a cough. <coughs> Back to this. Uh, let's start again. So the author was looking at the at this vulnerability, but then he realized that someone else was writing about the exact same thing. So he quit the idea of doing a write up. But when the fix actually came out, he looked at the fix and said, oh, that's not exactly what I was writing about, going to write about, so let, let's look at it again. And he went in and he found that these pointer verifications were exactly the hardening mitigations OS are put in place, but that they can still be quite easily bypassed, bringing back the usage of the read-write primitive. Now, he goes into a lot of detail of... Code that I did not bother to try and analyze or figure out what he was doing, but he goes into a lot of detail uh, of how this works and how he's able to basically bypass the mitigations that have been put in place. So it's time to go back and do a little more work. Yikes!
0: But that's good. It's it's actually a very interesting port, port, uh, post. I don't I did not know that much uh, kind of about this level of Windows 10 kernel security features um and as a yeah. source it can be harder to research so this is a you know this guy's obviously an expert um has done a lot of work here so it's a good read
1: it is it is it's very interesting
0: okay next up we've got it issues and delta oh actually i heard about this and i had some friends impacted by this uh, tell us more
1: how badly were they affected by this? Uh, just, they, just went flight, spent the night in the airport? Spent
0: the night in the airport. Uh, and I think they ended up canceling and using an entirely other airline to get home. So not a good day for Delta.
1: So they had to cancel about 150 flights. And they expect even more to be canceled. But the IT department is working to rectify the situation, they tweeted. This is on Sunday. So... Domestic flights were grounded on Sunday evening due to automation issues, so that was only domestic. It didn't affect um, any international flights, and flights in the air were unaffected, so to me that sounds like it was um, ticketing and reservations, or it may have been even uh, the ability to to refer to that information at the gate, stuff like that. I don't think it had anything to do with uh, flight safety. It was only just uh, their book. yeah, the
0: logistics around getting you Mm -hmm. onto and getting... Yeah,
1: right. So (laughs) you're unable to get everyone onto the plane and get get you to take off. So once you're off, you're fine.
0: It kind of just uh, underscores how much we rely on all this technology. Kind of just like back to that hotel story where once it breaks everything is ground to a halt a lot of the people mm-hmm. at the edges of it don't know how or don't have the skill or the authority or the tools really to do anything about it and so you're oh. just
1: stuck and i seem to believe a lot of the airline reservation systems are fairly old
0: yeah i believe so too weren't i think like, i think there's some uh, of the older technologies still in use
1: have you ever heard of saber yeah that's been around a long time
0: decades we're talking right
1: very long time. I think Alan once mentioned that um, part of the number that you used to write on the ticket back in the old days was actually disk sector or disk block references.
0: So here you're getting an actual, you're, this is not a, It's not even a primary key. This is actually the, uh,
1: the a location, physical, physical location the of
0: the blocks on the disk.
1: Wow. On uh, the disk. That's I think Alan wild. was talking about that back in the uh, old days. Wow. All right, well, but talk, yeah, talk, um, that's crazy. I think the ticketing and reservation systems and the even flight management is very complicated. Yes. So I don't blame them for not rewriting.
0: No, them. I don't either, right? And it's like a lot of systems that all kind of have to interconnect, they talk to each other, work across airlines, across airports. Time zones, time zone, countries. Oh, time zones. <sighs> yep, that's, I do not envy that. I don't want to write that software. I don't want to rewrite that software. <sighs> all right, well, talking about disks, here's a story where a police department loses years... Mm-hmm. years mm-hmm. worth of evidence in another yep. ransomware incident.
1: Now, from what I understand, this is a very small police department. The The uh, local town has about 4,300 people. So it's, it's we're not talking about a huge uh, city police uh, location. So apparently someone clicked on an email and it took all over the whole system. I think it was something called Lockie, which is ransomware, and the crooks asked for $4,000 and they decided to just wipe the data server and reinstall everything. However, their backups were no good because they had been overwritten with the encrypted stuff. So they had no backups. From what I, from my reading of this is they had no backups. They had no backups. And the first rule of backups is you always have a backup when you're writing a new backup.
0: Right, don't overwrite so, your old backup in place. Don't
1: have just one copy.
0: Yeah, no. That's if you have one copy, you have what basically zero copies.
1: Especially if you overwrite the previous backup. Yeah, all you're doing there is mirroring.
0: Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, then, exactly. It's more for availability than any kind of actual data yeah. retention.
1: Uh, so I think th- I, I think this made the news because it was uh, a police station. If this had been a small business or something, I don't think anyone would have picked it up. Right. Yeah.
0: Boy, that. Uh, Locky is a really cute name for an evil little thing.
1: Yep. (laughs) Well, I'm glad they're monetizing their evil ways.
0: Yeah, right. Uh, The engine of capitalism at work. Yeah. (sighs) Okay. Uh, Next up in the roundup, what do we got?
1: Well, this was something I'd never heard of. Secure HTTP without HTTPS. I'd never heard of this project before, but apparently it had been going on for a while. And it had been crowdsourced for the funding to do it. And finally, someone decided to look at it. And they found that it's no good. They did a review, they released the review, and now it's no longer available. You can't buy it, you can't find it, it's just not there. So, I don't know whether this was malice or just lack of experience, but encryption is hard to do and it's hard to do right. So if you're doing it on the fly and not really knowing what you're doing, you wind up here where it's really not going to work.
0: Yeah, and then you're in a position where you've put in, you know, maybe a lot of work and you end up with a result that doesn't really do anything or, you know, isn't safe enough to be used productively for applications. Uh, I like the uh, Schneier quote at the top here. Anyone from the most clueless amateur to the best cryptographer can create an algorithm that he himself can't break yep well said as always that's an interesting yep so is this just kind of trying to target people who didn't want to have to deal with all the overhead of ssl tls the maintenance the certs um it's an interesting idea for a project but perhaps a bad one
1: backups are useless restores are priceless yeah
0: that that is also very true Okay, well, on that topic, our final story in the roundup, we've got an update from
1: Black Backblaze. I'm very pleased to see one of my hard drives in here.
0: Oh, and they've got an ad for us. Thanks, Backblaze. So, one of your hard drives, hon, huh? which one?
1: Yeah, um, can you scroll down to the stats one? Yeah, right there. The Toshiba one. First Toshiba listed. I have at least a Dozen, maybe twenty of those drives. Look at the error rate. Zero. Zero. Mind wow. you, they only have they only have forty-six.
0: Right. It's not quite the the same significant sample sizes. But like...
1: the average age is almost four years. Forty-four months.
0: Wow. So that was the uh, the first Wh- the one.
1: The D T O one ACA three hundred. Okay, got it. I have I have several of those hard drives and I also have the five-terabyte uh, five, five terabyte version of that drive. That's almost exclusively what I have in here. Not the five-terabyte that they have listed down there, but if you look down there, those, those drives are, are nearly two years old, and they also have a zero rate.
0: Oh, yeah, look at that. Wow.
1: But I mean, and, and talk... But the drive days, you know, it's only 4,000 drive days. If you get into the bigger volumes... Right, once you've got uh,
0: millions of days or whatever.
1: Yeah, once you've got millions of days, you've got a 2.6%. And then 800,000 days, but that is still very good. The HGST seem to be very good drives.
0: And so for anyone who doesn't know... um, Backblaze has recorded and saved daily hard drive statistics from the drives in their data centers since April 2013, and so they've kind of been publishing every now and again, I think maybe even at regular intervals, they have one of these update articles and show you, hey, this is what we use. It's neat because it gives you an eye, and most of us, I I do not have access to this number of disks from diverse providers running in daily use. I would have no way to compile this data set. So it's really neat that they're willing to share and talk about. And, like, sometimes there's criticisms of their analysis. There's, you know, criticisms of the conclusions that people draw from it. Uh, But the more data, the better.
1: Yeah, like, some of the drives here, they have nearly 35,000 of that drive. Wow. And in other cases, they have less than 100, like, less than 50 of my version of the drive. But still, they've had no drive failures. There, there are some, all, all of the, let me see, all of the items with less than 100 drives have had no drive failures. Anything with less than 200 drives, no drive failures. Oh, no, sorry. The Seagate had 184 and they've had seven drive failures. So anything less, less than 100 drives had no drive failures. So it's not very, it, it's a small sample.
0: Yes, it is. A, it is a that is definitely a small sample, but reassuring for you, nonetheless.
1: Yes, it is. Anything else yes, uh,
0: stand out in this article for
1: you? Um, the average, the average failure rate down at the bottom right corner, just under two percent. So, two percent of drives over last year. Oh no, that's only the past few months.
0: Hmm. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, okay, so this is 10-1-2016, so October 2016 through the end of
1: 2016.
0: Yeah. Okay, so they had about a 2% failure rate there. That's interesting.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Out of 6 million dri- drive days, Yeah. 72,000 drives? That's not bad. That
0: seems pretty reasonable. <laughs> Especially when you consider, like, you know, these um, spinning, actual spinning drives.
1: It's almost a drive a day for a year, but over three months, so it's... So it's compressed. Four four drives a day. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. That keeps you busy.
0: And thank you, Chat Room. Uh, Chat Room has delightfully pointed out that they do this quarterly, so uh, we can look forward soon to another installment from Backblaze. Thank you, Chat Room. Thank you, Chat Room. You're ever so helpful. Anything else you'd like to talk about in today's show?
1: I have an APC PDU 7900, which is acting up and needs a new PSU. That's So I have a second one here. I'm going to install it sometime over the weekend. That's what I'm going to be spending hey, my weekend.
0: Hey, week. that's exciting. Uh, is this one yes. with like remote management type stuff? Can you power things off and on? Oh, he's got it. He's going to show.
1: It's this thing here.
0: Oh, nice. Yeah, look at that.
1: So it has a a serial console port and a data port, internet port, so you can actually SSH into it.
0: That's awesome. You can put
1: up a web page. Um, The only thing is there's no ears on this one. Okay. So that's a pain in the ass. That is a pain, yeah. uh, I have to take the old one out, take the ears off that, use this one. Put it on
0: there, then put it back in the rack and all that.
1: And the beauty of these is they're very reliable and they're just a regular plug 120 volt
0: Oh, nice. And so you don't even need to have any sort of special power requirements or.
1: Excellent. I really like, I really like them. This is the third one I have. Uh, I originally had three. I sold one to Alan, So that made the cross-border trek one, one year nice. when I was growing up.
0: How much do those run?
1: Uh, when I was buying them, they were about 75 bucks each. Now they're more like 125 150 I have no idea why the price went up, but they are a very reliable item. And new ones are being snapped up for about 200 to $225 okay. on eBay.
0: That is good to know. Well, with that weekend update, that brings us to the end of the TechSnap program. We were live on Tuesday, January 31st, 2017. I'd like to give out a shout out here to the live stream. You can watch live. Go to jblive.tv. Follow along with our excellent IRC chat room. You'll see them at the end of the show. If you'd like to see more, head over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. You can see the backlog of our show, the past TechSnap, and a number of other fine programs. If you'd like to hear more from Dan or myself, you can find him at TechSnap underscore Dan, and I am at Wes Payne on Twitter. See you guys next week.